And that's why you get up and come to church at Westridge on a morning like this. Big men playing tiny guitars. I just stole Darren's best line. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, Luke records the birth of Jesus with these words. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and she was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths. She placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here to celebrate Christmas this morning. And if you haven't made plans for Christmas Eve to be here, you really should. There will be phenomenal music. And it's a great, great Christmas Eve service here at Westridge at 3 and 5. And then the family service at 1.30 is a new thing uh, that you could check out as well. All three will be great. The 1.30 will be different than the 3 and the 5. So I encourage you to come check those out. Uh, most of us are very familiar, or at least fairly familiar, with the Christmas story as it is portrayed in the Gospels in Matthew and Luke. But this morning, I want us to look at the Christmas story from a different perspective, from the way that the Apostle Paul tells it. And you may not be familiar with the fact that Paul actually tells it. And he does so in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. You may have read that and not really thought about it from that perspective. But that's really what it is. It's his version of the Christmas story. The cool thing is that Bible scholars, and even those who are skeptical about the Bible, look at this passage and go, yep, we agree. Paul wrote it. Yep, we agree about the time that he wrote it. It was about 20 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, about 50 years after the birth of Jesus. And what makes that important is that there would have still been people walking around who had heard Jesus teach, who had seen him alive, seen his miracles, witnessed his death, burial, and resurrection, could verify that Jesus was a historical person. They were eyewitnesses. And given Paul's previous occupation as a bounty hunter targeting Christian leaders for execution, it's highly likely that he knew many of the original disciples of Jesus. He may have even known Mary, Jesus' mother. may have talked to her in person. And if he didn't, he certainly knew, we know this for fact, that he knew John. Jesus' disciple, who took care of Mary until her death. So he had good first-hand information about Jesus. So here's Paul, around A.D. 50, looking back on the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, not giving us all of the intimate details of those things, 
but giving us the significance of the Christmas story, why it matters to you and to me. And he starts off by saying, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. No, don't fly past those first two phrases too quickly when you read this passage. God sent his son, born of a woman, in two very quick phrases, a few short words. Paul gives two of the greatest truths in all of Scripture. That Jesus was, in fact, fully God and fully human. The Son of God sent to earth, humbled, and became fully human, born of an ordinary first century Jewish girl. Now in our day, we've heard it so much, we've cleaned it up, we've sanitized it, we've turned it into movies and cartoons, plastic figures on our front lawn. We just accept that and we move on. But for Paul, just a few years after the death of Jesus, that was a big deal. To come to the conclusion that God had a son who was born of a woman, that was a huge deal. And then when he gets to the significance of what that meant, he says, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. When Jesus was born in the first century, he was born as a Middle Eastern Jewish baby. And like any other Jew born in that day, he was accountable to all the laws and commands of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, and everything that went with it. Jesus was born under the law to redeem everyone who was under the law, which was everyone born until the law was done away with. Throughout the scriptures, we are presented with this central truth. God has standards, laws, and we have all broken them. One verse says it this way, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, every one of us. There's not a single human being who has ever lived or will live, with the exception of Jesus, who is capable of keeping all of God's standards perfectly. We all have our weaknesses, right? Connie and I were reminded of this this week. Um, We're baking Christmas cookies, right? It's that season of the year. And we have this one cookie we bake. It's a spritz. And it is absolutely our favorite. We bake the first batch, pull them out of the oven, and it's like, oh my gosh. We looked at each other and said the same phrase, that will be our downfall. (laughs) Like I needed something to be my downfall, right? We all have our weaknesses. We have what one person called our signature sins, the things that we're prone to do. And if we had time, we'd go around the room. If we all were vulnerable enough, we could say, this is the thing that I'm most likely to do. That's a sin, a wrong, violates God's standard. It could be anger, it could be lust, it could be pride, it could be greed. You know yourself well enough. You know what it is for you, and I know what it is for me. We all have trouble living up to God's standard. And that shouldn't surprise any of us. We have trouble living up to the standards that we set for ourselves that aren't even God's standards for us, right? I bet there's some of you like me in the room who are already looking at January 1st. I mean, we've got all the Christmas parties and the Christmas food. We put on that Christmas weight. And we're going January 1st. That's it, baby. January 1st. New diet, new exercise plan, 
shedding the weight, getting in shape, January 1st is the day. And we know ourselves well enough. We know from our history that by January 7th, for some of us by the end of the bowl games on January 1st, we'll have given up the standard we set for ourselves. By January 15th, it'll be a long-gone memory. We have trouble keeping the standards we set for ourselves. We set up all kinds of standards for ourselves. Parenting standards, relationship standards, marriage standards, standards for our character, how we're going to treat people, how uh, we're going to be honest, the language we're going to use, character standards that define the kind of person we want to be. And then we don't keep them. We break them. And the funny thing is, a lot of the standards in our lives nobody imposes on us. We set them for ourselves, and we can't keep them. We break them. Then there are the standards set by the government, the laws in our society. My son and my daughter both moved in the last six weeks. One within the Chicagoland area, one moved to California. They both broke the law in that six-week window. It's wonderful having reprobates for children. Uh, They broke it unknowingly. So they knew that they had to change their car title, registration, their driver's license. What they didn't know is that you only have a two-week window to do that. Who knew, right? You have two weeks to do that. That bit of knowledge I gave you this morning will save you hundreds of dollars in fines. No lie. You're welcome. Um, (laughs) We break laws unknowingly. Sometimes we break them knowingly. How many of you knowing, and I won't ask you to raise hands, um, knowingly, it's illegal to send texts while you're driving, still send text messages. Even just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be late for a meeting, send a text. I'm going to be late getting home. This just happened, I'm going to send a text. I'll raise my hand. I still do that occasionally. I do it. (laughs) I know. Just shattered your image of me as a perfect pastor, right? But I will tell you that I made it all the way to December without sinning, so it's the first thing I did. So, um, I, you know, I still do that occasionally. I do it, you know, I dictate it by voice, but I still send text, so technically I'm still breaking the law. We still do things. We know what's right and wrong. We still do the wrong things. Even those of us who are Christians, we say Christ is the authority in our lives, we still break the law. The laws the government set, the standards we set for ourselves, the ones that God has set up for us. And even people who are not yet Christians can look at themselves and go, yep, there are laws I've broken. The Bible teaches us this, that breaking the law creates a debt-debtor relationship. And it creates that relationship with the person who established the law. Even when we don't agree with the law, that relationship is established. Here's an example. Most of us, hang on to that, most of us agree with and abide by speed limits. Most of us. Most of the time. But occasionally, any one of us can look in our rearview mirror and see lights that remind us that we have broken the law, right? 
And when you see those lights from this point forward, you will immediately be reminded that you are now in a debt-debtor relationship. You've broken the law, you now owe. Last time I was in that relationship, it was $95. (laughs) The same thing happens between us and God. Paul said, Jesus was born under the law to redeem, to pay for, to buy back, to pay the debt for everyone who was born under the law, who broke the law, owed a debt. That's all of us. We all owed a debt to God for the laws, the sins we've committed, the laws we've broken. From Paul's perspective, he says, this is the first part of really good news about Christmas morning. Jesus paid the debt for the sin we committed, a debt that we could never pay back on our own. Because of what Jesus has done for us, even though we are absolutely guilty, the law can no longer condemn us. Because of grace, we don't owe God a debt anymore. Now, that's not news to a lot of you. You're aware of the fact that grace cancels the debt that we owe to God. But if we stop there in our relationship with God, then that leaves us in this transactional relationship with God. I owe, he paid, thanks. We're grateful, but it's just this distant transactional relationship with God. And thankfully, Paul doesn't stop there. He, he moves on and tells us the rest of why Christ came on Christmas morning. And it's deeper than that. He says he came to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. God wants more than just to forgive our debt. He wants a relationship with us. It's possible to forgive someone and not have a relationship with them, right? I mean, you've had friendships. You've had maybe even family relationships where you've forgiven somebody, but the relationship is never there anymore. It's gone. It's possible that that can happen. You can get a speeding ticket, go to court. The judge can look across the bench at you and say, you're guilty, but I'm going to let you go. I'm going to drop the charges. You are forgiven. But my guess is the judge isn't going to look at you and say, I want to form a friendship with you now. He's not going to invite you over for dinner. And based on your driving history, he's not going to ask you for a ride home. (laughs) He's not going to form a relationship with you. God says, I want more than that. I want more than simply to be the one who cancels your debt. And Paul looks around in his culture, looks for a metaphor, a word picture, and says the, the picture of what God wants is adoption. But in his culture, it has a stronger meaning than what we get from it. Here's why. When we think about adoption, what do we think of? We think of this family who decides to adopt and they find a young child, a toddler. Maybe, if they're really gracious, they'll adopt an older child because they aren't really typically adopted in the system. In Paul's day, that's not the way adoption worked. First of all, 
In the Jewish culture, there was no word for adoption in the Hebrew language. They just didn't do adoption. If a kid was orphaned, if the parents died, the, the extended family took care of the kid. There wasn't even a Hebrew word for adoption. It just didn't happen. Families took care of the kids. Roman culture didn't happen. Okay? There was a word for adoption. There was a plan for adoption. But Romans didn't adopt children. They never adopted babies because there was a high mortality rate. You're not going to get attached to a baby because babies die. That's just life. So they don't adopt babies. Rarely, rarely would somebody adopt a toddler. Because you don't know how a toddler is going to turn out. So what the Romans did, the vast majority of the time, like north of 90%, you adopted an adult. Okay? It sounds weird, doesn't it? But listen, you might, you might pick up on something. Here, it might be helpful for you. Hang on to this. What you did, what you did was you were a rich person. You were a powerful person with titles and positions. You were a landowner. And you looked at your own children and thought, I'm not leaving that to them. They're irresponsible. They can't handle all this. It's going to be wasted on them. I have worked too hard to leave this to my irresponsible children. They can't handle my title, my land, my money. So I'm going to adopt somebody to leave my stuff to. Wheels turning for you? So in fact, you may remember examples from this from ancient history. Julius Caesar was assassinated. When they read his will, what they found out was that he had basically adopted his grandnephew, Octavian, who was 19 years old. They read the will, and Octavian heard for the very first time he had been adopted by Julius Caesar. He got all of his uncle's titles, all of his authority, all of his land, all of his money. It was a great day for Octavian. He eventually went on to become Caesar Augustus. He was the emperor when Jesus was born. Caesar Augustus had no sons of his own to leave his kingdom to. So he ended up adopting his wife's son, Tiberius, from a previous marriage. Tiberius got a little funky as it got towards Caesar Augustus' death. He started doing a land grab and a power grab, and Caesar Augustus wasn't happy with this, so he did a little weird thing of his own. Okay? Try to track with me on this. So when Caesar Augustus died and they were reading the will, Tiberius heard them say, well, okay, so Tiberius, you have a sister you didn't know about. Seems your adopted father actually adopted your mom. So you and your mom will reign together. So Tiberius, meet your sister, your mom. So, and the cool thing is if you trace the lineage of these people, like this mom, sister, and son, this enmeshed family thing, their ancestors actually settled Arkansas, so it all makes sense now. (laughs) Not true. Um, So... I don't know how to recover from that. They reign together. Here's why I'm telling you this. Connie's in the back going, I'm not married to him. Um, 
here's why I tell you that. So if you're a person of great wealth, if you're a person of means, and you don't trust your children, I'm open to being adopted. That's the point. No. The point is this. Paul is not writing to a Jewish audience. Paul's writing to a Roman audience. That's where this letter's going. They get the concept of adult children, of adults being adopted into a family. They hear this. They hear him saying, God wants to adopt me. And when they hear that, their jaws dropped. So God looks at us with all of our flaws, with all of our failings, all of our sins. God knows that the rich and the powerful and the people with titles have already looked over us and said, "Mm -mm, no, you're not worth it. But God looks at us. After we've been redeemed, once our sins are forgiven, once our debt has been paid and says, I want to adopt you in spite of everything that you've done, in spite of everything you will do and all the promises that you've broken. The invitation is there not just to be forgiven, not just to have things made right with God, but to be adopted as his child. And when the Galatians read this, this wasn't just good news. This took their breath away. This was staggering. Paul says, I've heard the stories of Jesus' birth. I know the stories of his life, his death, his resurrection, and now I know what God was up to that first Christmas morning when he sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. It was purely relational. It wasn't a legal transaction to cancel my debt. And the best part of the Christmas story is that we have been adopted into God's family. And then he drives it home and says, now because you are his sons, because you are his daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts to seal the deal. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And since you're his child, God has made you also an heir. In those two verses, he makes it crystal clear that God wants an intimate relationship with us with one distinct word, Abba. Let me explain that word, because some of you hear that and you think, oh, the band from the 70s. It's actually an Aramaic word. It's the same word that Jesus used in Mark 14, 36, when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he was praying... And he was pleading with God about what was about to happen to him before his crucifixion. He was pleading with God. And he prayed, Abba, Dad, Dad, don't let this happen to me. Dad, let me find a way to escape. It is an extraordinarily intimate word. 
One that would have made the disciples who heard him praying and the people who read this letter uncomfortable. To think about calling God by this name, Dad? Nobody would have ever dared to use that word to address God before Jesus did. Dad. There isn't even an equivalent word in the Greek language for this Aramaic word, Abba. So when they wrote the Greek New Testament, they just left the Aramaic word in, Abba, and then put Father after it for those who didn't understand Aramaic to say kind of, well, it's there, but this is what it means. Paul said, because of what Christ has done for us, we can now relate to God, not simply as a forgiver, not as a judge, but as a father. And not just a father, but Abba, Father, Dad. That's the level of intimacy we've been invited into with God. And when Paul thinks about that Christmas morning, God's son born of a woman, he realizes that's what it ultimately leads to. We're not slaves. We're his children. When you relate to God as a slave, it's all about keeping the rules. Where do you have to be? What do you have to do? What rules do you have to keep? And what happens to you if you don't do those things? But because we've been redeemed from the law, we don't have to relate to God like that anymore. Any language we have, any prayers we make, any attitudes that we have towards God that view Him as a taskmaster, a judge, a dictator, we need to let those go. Move past those. Because we have been invited to follow Jesus' example and address our Heavenly Father as Dad because he's adopted us as his children. Because Christmas morning forever changed our relationship with God. We don't have to look at God through the lens of shame or guilt or debt anymore. He wants us to be his child regardless of whatever we've done. Our debt's been paid. We're his child. We are an heir We are a joint heir with Christ. And that is the foundation of our relationship with him. So let me ask you a question. What are you worth to God? God is willing to adopt you. Not as a baby, a clean slate. No mistakes, no past. He's willing to adopt you right now. As you are with all of your flaws, all your weaknesses, all your history. What are you worth to God? You are worth so much that he invites you into a relationship with him as his child where you can call him Abba, Dad. Christmas is about God sending his son into this world so that we can become his children. What are you worth 
to God, you are worth Christmas. There's no greater gift that's ever been offered to us than the gift of forgiveness and adoption that God offers through the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. If you've never accepted Jesus as the one who would forgive your sins and lead your life, then I would encourage you to think about that in this Christmas season. Think about it in this communion time. In these quiet moments to just simply consider offering up that prayer and saying, God, I'll accept that sacrifice. I want Jesus to come into my life, forgive my sins, and lead me. And if you'd like to talk about that decision, I'll be around after the service. Be happy to spend a few minutes talking with you or at some point this week. It's a great season of the year to think about your relationship with the one who offers to cancel your debt and adopt you. For those of us who have already made that decision, communion offers the opportunity to remember, reflect on the greatest gift we've ever been given. So let's pray. God, for your grace in our lives that began that Christmas morning so long ago, we are so thankful. God, we remember that gift all throughout this week and especially now in this communion time. In Christ's name, amen.